0: And that's the Smiths, just for a change, with the track titled "You Just Haven't Earned It Yet, Baby." This is David Easton. This is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop. As you know, I always love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Vincent Cassidy, or Vin Cassidy, from Section 25. So I've got that interview that I've broken up into three or four. Easy to digest little segments throughout the show, alongside the usual award-worthy playlist, but to get the party rolling, I'm going to play your favourite of mine. This is looking from a hilltop. Vincent, take it away. That is Section 25 with a track titled Looking From a Hilltop. That came out in um, 1984 from the album From the Hip. That was also produced by Bernard Sumner. This is David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. As always, I'd like to get a special guest this week. It's going to be Vincent Cassidy from the band, who I spoke to last month, I do believe. So I've got that uh, broken up into various sections. So that will be a delight. And also, this is the bit where I like to do my admin. If you want to contact me, we love your messages. You can via Facebook or Twitter, just go to at C86show. And also, because I've been doing this show for nearly two and a half years, And each week I have a special guest. You can find the archive on um, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Mixcloud. Just go to C86 Show and they will all be there. They'll be easy to find. But anyway, I think we should have some more music before the first part of the interview. This is taken from a John Peel session from 1981. And this is Hit taken from a John Peel session recorded on the 20th of January 1981. That is hit and that also features on their uh, album that came out on the same year, Always Now. This is David Eastall, this is the C86 show and this is the first part of my interview with Vin when I had been talking for some time and then we were chatting about the band and also the history and this was a bit of the background. Vin, take it away.
1: Well, from what I can remember, I mean, how, how far do you want to go back? I mean, I, I was, I was, uh, I've always been a drummer I played, uh, started playing drums as a child, um, way before my brother, um, got interested in music. So I've been, I was sort of, um, playing at home as, uh, I'd have been about, I don't know, 17 something like that, and he went to university in London, uh, Kingston, I think it was, um, doing an art degree, and of course he was going uh, on forays at weekends and stuff out into London and and dipping his toe in the punk scene, which was totally unheard of up up north. It was just starting, I suppose, um, 76, 77, and then he'd come back um all fired up about about stuff and um i got bought a, a guitar bass guitar from Woolworths, <laughs> and um would would join me playing um just the two of us bass and drums and that that sort of went on for for quite a while um and we tried out a few different guitarists but we couldn't really Really get anybody to fit with us, you know. Um, we were quite into improvising and just just sort of setting off and playing and doing what we felt like. And and I think it kind of um, a lot of guitarists that tried out for us didn't really they weren't really into that approach, you know. Yes,
0: because cause you you know this was all formed around Blackpool. This is kind of is this the the Blackpool area that you were sort of growing up in?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean we grew up in a place just outside of Blackpool, Poulton, yes. the Falwell. Um but yeah, yeah, I mean Blackpool was our our stomping ground as it were.
0: Because in 77, uh, you know, like I'm I'm not sure of punk, you know, it's a bit like that kind of classic kind of 60s period. You know, like in '67, I always remember somebody, one of those famous photographers, from, famous f- photographers from that period, saying, "Well, you know, at the time there was only probably a very small scene in London who were on it. It was only a few years later that things started to develop in other places, like oh, the, yeah. the northeast or yeah. you know, Norwich or places like that. You know, we they de- definitely didn't get the summer of love in you know '67." In the fine, the fine city that is. I north. mean, it
1: was almost as if by the time things had started taking off up north, it had finished. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it had it had already it had already run its course where it had started. Yes, uh, well, I,
0: I would imagine you know, like by then you'd got the sort of the ripple effect, and you know, it was the sort of slightly dreadful bands that were starting to appear, calling yeah, themselves I punk.
1: Yeah, we we did our first gig uh, in summer of. 78 with um original guitarist and we were doing we we're doing a few covers and stuff like that and um some original stuff um and we i think we did um a handful of gigs with this chap phil but it, it i mean it it was okay for me at the time it was obviously wasn't working uh for him because he he left and then um we asked paul Um, the guy that we recorded with Factory, um, with Paul Wiggin, um, to to sort of fill the void, as it were. And that kind of gelled much better with what we were doing. Uh, I mean, it was always very much a sort of Larry and I playing the, the bass and drums, sort of quite a strident thing going on, and Larry doing his you know whatever vocals came into his head at the time and paul would be it would be rather than a, a sort of structured guitar thing going along he he, he it was almost like a, an ambient accompaniment to that, and no it would never be the same twice you know um but that kind of that it it really fitted well um with with what and he, he used to use some backing uh, cassettes at the time backing tapes and stuff sound effects and things like
0: that yes Uh, and obviously you you sort of became part of that factory records kind of environment and world and then the famous martin hannett so that must have made quite a difference because having sort of you know i don't know just looking back at that period you were talking about the late 70s and especially this kind of area there was you know the main band in you know where i was growing up was status quo and most people musically there wasn't not a lot of interesting stuff going on in this kind of neck of the woods at all so you'd obviously had started to um make quite an interesting sound of of, um yes because most bands that i knew who were quite local definitely weren't making an interesting sound at all that you'd want to sort of um revisit 30 40 years later
1: yeah i mean yeah i mean um it same for us up here there was sort of uh, you know you had the, the the big bands who were sort of like a separate species weren't they you know you, they were um they were just rock gods weren't they you know or or whatever so we you didn't see them as as just people no you know?
0: well i suppose i was a bit more influ- influenced by my older brother who was seven years older than me so he he'd sort of got that kind of his musicals you know moment and and that was all kind of the prog rock stuff that he would sort of really got into and I I sort of was quite young at the time and sort of thought he was had good taste so I (laughs) I followed him into the world of yes and genesis but you know a rock star was a very different thing than anybody else they they were you know as if they'd been on the moon really you know you wouldn't you wouldn't expect to see them
1: you know, well, them. I mean, we, we were going. There was we were going to. There wasn't an awful lot happening in Blackpool, but we used to go to clubs in Liverpool and Manchester. We'd go out to see, and there's a few things. Sometimes would be the odd band on at Lancaster University, sort of a bit, bit north from us. But we 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 were into. Um, we went to see a band called Tans de Youth at, at Eric's in Liverpool um mainly because we were into the bass guitarist who'd been in the damned you know we were so we went down and it was a saturday um and weirdly eric's uh on a saturday the support band played after the main band (laughs) i don't know why that was that's just Playing odd, but anyway, uh, of Youth came on and it was Pat, you know, everybody was pogoing going. It's still very much a punk energy thing going on and a punk sort of uh evening, really. Um, and then they went off and the place pretty much emptied, and then these guys were sort of shuffling on and setting up their equipment, the support band, and, and they and they started out, and it was Joy Division, and it made quite an impression on me. Um wasn't really expecting that and um I know the other the other two were sort of quite quite bowled over as well and we got talking to them. Uh and we we, we there wasn't any re- anywhere to play in Blackpool so we, we were all wanted to organise a gig um in Blackpool and we asked them to play. Um Joy Division and there was a few other bands on at, at this show. Um so when we played at that gig, that was when um, Ian Curtis and Rob Gretton, the manager of Joy Division, came up to us afterwards and said, "You, you, you need to come to Cargo um, Studios in Rochdale and record some tracks as a demo for Factory, the label that we're on. And we think it'd be really good." Uh, so that was that was the very start of the sort of Factory connection, really.
0: Yes. And did that feel like you'd sort of been given some sort of like nod from higher up to say this is it? You're going. You're on the way.
2: No, not <laughs>
1: <laughs> like at all. It just felt like somebody was saying you're all right. You're not because we'd had an awful lot of your shit, your crap, pretty much at every turn. It was pretty much what we were doing was. We like we wanted to do this, and and we just got to the point where we were ac- accepting that in the audience. If there's somebody else happened to like it as well, that was a bonus. Yes. So who was it when they came up and said, you know, you need to uh, you need to record this and uh, and and do a demo? We were out, <laughs> I was pretty blown by that. Really, we'd never been to a studio before. Yeah. yeah recording without. And was, uh, you know, like with a Sony Walkman in the practice scene, that sort of thing.
0: And that is the first part of my interview with Vin Cassidy from Section 25. Still more of that to come, but I think we should play some music just to keep the party rolling. This is going to be more Chart Band Sounds. This is Fredney Fires. <laughs> There you go, that's the opening track from the album Always and Now. Titled Friendly Fires and that, was, and that was also produced by Martin Hannett. Hello, David Eastall here, The C86 Show. This is going to be the second part of my interview with Vin Cassidy where i had been talking about the narrative of most bands which seem to last five years um, and also the experience of going to America which often breaks bands as well because of um, the, the intensity and the size of it. And um, this was Vin's reply. Vin, what was it all about? Play in America and all that exciting yeah, stuff.
1: Yeah, it's a graveyard for a lot of bands, though. Yes. I mean, apart from like take the America out of the, the 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 equation. Just to do America, you've got to be that you. You're 30 days, and you'd just be scratching the surface. So a lot of the time, it was the it would be the most time you've spent with these other people in the band, so close together, without any respite, no privacy, getting to know. Intimately, everybody's annoying bad habits or personality traits that you kind of didn't really uh,
2: need to
0: know,
1: to <laughs> but but it would be really shoved in your face. So you know, there's that. I mean, it. You know, we. I can I can I You know, been to America a few times, and and it, you know, you you start off sort of talking to each other in you know and conversing quite. I mean, you come back just grunting
2: you know it, it's just, you you, you, you
1: slipped down the food chain down the evolutionary ladder to, to a lot of respects you know but we were family so i mean it wasn't maybe that was the difference for us yes. I, I understand what you mean about the five year narrative i mean because in a way with the first sort of incarnation of the band which was the three piece with paul we did we did that for and that, and then things changed we didn't split up but but the personnel changed and we did something different and then we we sort of went through a like an 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 electronic keyboard evolution with from the hip and, and that lasted for so many years and that so so there's been different phases of the band yes
0: you know? and I never come across a band which had such a lot of family dynamic in.
1: Yeah, we, I mean, you know, that's weird. Isn't it? You think we'd get somebody else to play in the band? Yes, <laughs> I know. I mean, because
0: cause at first I thought, oh, is this a bit Fleetwood Mac? But it's not really, is it? It's more just like you are family.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, but I mean, it just started accidentally with my brother and I. Um, Paul was an old school friend of his, um, so. I don't know maybe maybe for us it, it, the important thing at first off wasn't wasn't so much about musical style or musicianship but but just being able to get on with someone you know uh being being able to sort of um, hang around with them and, and understand what they're thinking yes um, you know i don't know i've I've never really um I've done bits and pieces with other musicians, but I've never been in another band, so I'm kind of. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm that you know, like those Japanese um soldiers that were left on the Pacific Islands after the Second World War guarding the machine gun.
2: Yeah, and, didn't know the no, war had finished.
1: So, <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's a bit like that. <laughs> you know, but I yeah. just enjoy I i'm the bottom line is I enjoy I enjoy doing the stuff, so
0: And when and during so that like, and during that eighties period when you'd sort of done um, from the hip to um, Love and Hate. Did you did you sort of feel part of any scene? You know, because cause, cause I sort of look at sort of different musical times, you know, like that 80s period for me, that indie world was, you know, like from 83 to 87, which is basically the years of the Smiths. And then I sort of realised that a lot of those bands then puttered out because the, there was this change and there was the dance scene and a lot of bands had just got tired and fed up and, you know, dynamically... Had sort of got to the end of it, and plus they realised that there was a new musical kind of vibe going on, and they really weren't part of it. So they just said, "This is the time to quit." So the other bands like the Stone Roses, Primal Scream, and um, yes, that dance scene, Happy Monday started to come along. And then after that, you know, you had the the grunge scene, and then Britpop. So I know it's a bit simplistic, in my my, in my narrative, but I just wondered how you would navigate in through those that those kind of different musical moments.
1: Um, well, it was more, much more um, basic than that, really. Um, I mean, when, when during the factory years, um, I considered myself a, a professional musician. That was all I did, um, living, you know, earning a living-wise, and um, had um, a, a wife and two small kids. And it got to the point where after we did um, from the hip. Uh, and very sort of optimistic about where that was going to go. That hopefully that was going to catapult us to. We always wanted a wider audience than than. I mean, it was great with Factory, but we we always wanted to move on to a major like some of the other bands had done. So we were hopeful that that would happen. And we we'd negotiated with a few different labels, but nothing ever came of it. And so after the last tour that. Um, i did with with the band um around the states I came back and i had to hammer noticing um but not it wasn't to do with the fact that um i don't feel like i'm pursuing it wasn't musical differences i just couldn't afford to do that anymore so i had to go out and earn a living um, and that that larry soldiered on with his wife and they released love and hate um which about half of that was in the cam before I left, and they finished that off. And then it wasn't really until um, 2006 when when I wanted to sort of get back into it again, uh, doing music again. Just had that long, long period of just just not not being involved in it. Um, mm. It was kind of all down to finances, really.
2: Yes. You know.
1: I, I, I'm t- I mean I t- i I mean totally I thought your you, your um description of the musical genres there one after the other was quite was quite good actually. Um Well thank th- you. What's happening now though? Nothing is it's finished. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. I don't, you know
1: it's a- <laughs> It's a bit depressing, really. Yes. What are the kids up to? What's going on? Well,
0: well, I suppose I find it still quite fascinating, scratching the surface and still sort of discovering things that I kind of missed the first time, because, as I've mentioned to quite a few people, it's like I didn't listen to everything that came out in that period because actually it was impossible to because you couldn't always get hold of stuff it was not like you could just go and google it we didn't even know what google meant in those days you know gaga but not google but and and so you know sometimes you thought oh well, oh god that band's that album oh I'd love to listen to it but I don't know how to get hold of it oh dear it's gone now and something you know it was just like just it was such a fascinating period and then you had that kind of political period as well that was going on and that's the other thing that a lot of people I spoke to have mentioned is the importance of kind of unemployment, and as and a person I interviewed quite recently said that they were in a band because it's like well, there was not much else to do. Like, you know, yeah. they, you know, it's like well, it we really was not much else to do. So we were unemployed, we were in a band, and then. You know, we made a sign that, that John Peel liked. So we thought, oh, well, well then yeah. we might as well keep doing it because we didn't have that many op- more, you know, options available. And then you had things like the Job Seekers Allowance or the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, which gave people that one year of just going, well, we can be musicians. We can write, yeah. we can do it, we can get a certain amount of money, get our tax paid and housing benefit done and and do that. And I kind of feel that looking at it now, which I didn't appreciate, that that two years of of doing, you know, just being a musician, probably smoking and drinking a bit too much, but creating all the time and not sort of going off to the office, you know, five days a week or some other job, you know, in a shop, you know, was kind of very important for the creative process.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, so yeah. that's that was it. And I just kind of was curious, because obviously having to sort of walk away from a band that you were so much part of, did that sort of feel a bit
2: strange? Yeah,
1: it was a massive wrench. And I felt very, really bad. I felt like I felt like I'd let my brother down, especially um, quite badly. I mean, the fact that this the the album that came out after I left, he'd got like working titles for some of the tracks, like Shit Creek, No
2: Paddle, and stuff like that. So
1: I <laughs> think maybe he was sort of felt felt quite bad about it as well. Um, but I, I had to put family first, and. Um, you know, it just wasn't. I felt like my, my wife and kids were suffering for my art. You know, you can you can only take it so far. I thought I'd like given it a really good, a good good shot at it. And like I said, it was it had would worked hard with um, from the hip and, and as trying to use it as a springboard onto maybe getting in with a major and and having some um, white white possibility of. Wider releases and getting to a wider audience, but it just didn't happen. I mean, the fact was it with the guy from—I uh, don't know if it was United Artists or one of the labels that my brother was dealing with—said, um, "If factories accounts were as good as their artwork, we'd give you a contract tomorrow." You know. So yes. it was—it wasn't to be, I'm afraid. Yes, uh, but that when 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 I sort of got got back into it rediscovered things um afterwards it was quite nice because it uh, it was always going to be for me about w- the reasons i got into the whole thing in the first place when i was a kid which was for the for the stimulation and the enjoyment of it yes because it was what i what, just something driven inside that I wanted to do uh, and without without the fa- without the financial considerations and all those things that just really get in the way, you know. So that's kind of been my mantra since then. Um, you know, if I did it, I don't do it. It's not about it's not about trying to uh, make a living or anything like that anymore. It's just it's just for I mean, maybe it sounds a bit trite or a bit trivial, but I just it's for the I do it for the fun,
2: you know. Yes.
1: I don't mean fun in like having a laugh, but just they just getting some, getting, it just fulfills a need within.
0: Sounds good to me. That is the same part of my interview, interview with Vin Cassidy talking about the life of a band and the creative process. Hello, this is David Eastall, C86 show. I know I do repeat myself quite a lot, but that's an age thing. Don't worry about it. I always remember a few years ago I went to one of those Tony Robbins events, you know, a weekend workshop, and he said the two most important things were creativity and kindness and i thought nice idea so there you go keep it keep it real that's what we say especially in this day and age but i think we should have another track by the band and then some chat this is taken from their 1988 album going through the decade this is uh, the album was titled love and hate and this is bad news week Section 25 with a track titled Bad News Week that was taken from their album Love and Hate that came out in 1988, though it has been recorded in 1986. It's a tricky world, but that was factory records for you. Anyway, this is going to be the third part of my interview with Vin Cassidy from the band, where we were talking about growing old, as you do, and her life and all that exciting stuff. The ups and downs as well as the... yes. Comings and goings, and this was Vin's reply. Vin, tell us how, you, how you're coping with those kind of tricky moments, if you can.
1: I mean, gr- grief, you know, my brother passed away, um, and before that, his wife, Jenny, who, who, who'd who um, been in the band, she passed away, you know. So, um, I mean, when, when when we started playing again, in the mid 2000s and we, we were doing gigs, Larry, Larry was you know, obviously doing his thing and um, his daughter Jet, uh, Beth was doing a few gigs with us, just singing uh, singing with him on a few songs and then when he passed away, uh, we were sort of faced, once we like the, the sort of initial shock and and dust had settled, as it were, we sort of faced you faced the choice. Well, what do you do? Do you, do you do you carry on, or do you not? And if you do carry on, in what form? What how do you do it? Is it something completely different, or do you do you continue with the old band, or and um, Bethany and I had a quite a long sort. of, heartfelt talk about it and just agreed that we did want to carry on but but we just do it as long as it felt okay you know about doing it so kind of that's what we've done Um, yes you know but and we and it is weird doing doing the old songs that my brother sang on and his wife played on and sometimes i feel it's quite difficult to listen to it not not because of the content or anything but just listening to his voice you know because at the end of the day yeah I played with him for years in the same band and did loads of stuff and played all around the world but he's my brother as well you know and um, it's um, it's just sometimes it's it's not it's not easy is it you know?
0: well no and this is and this is one thing that one starts to sort of realize there's there's kind of thoughts and conversations you have now that you'd have never imagined having when you were in your 20s at all which is probably a, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing but anyway you know sort of like i said about life illness you know things happening around you so you just realize you realize how much different you know i always remember watching one of those rock documentaries that i really love you know consuming and i remember um robert plant saying that when John Bonham had died and then, you know, the band had finished, he said that was the the death of innocence. And I always remember hearing him say that and think, God, that's quite something. And he looked really, I don't know, slightly haunted or slightly empty when he said, you know, the death of innocence. And you realise that, yeah, th- those moments come and you just can't be the same person again. So,
2: No, no.
0: And that must have been quite something, you know, with with dealing with the band and keeping it going. Because the easy thing would have been just to put the whole thing in the cupboard and just said, I don't want to think about it until I'm in my 70s.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, it was just, I do kind of feel quite driven to sort of play music in one form or another, always have done. Don't know where the hell it comes from, but um, so it's just a question of. And I think what what would the format be? I I don't I, I kind of thought you know is my brother going to be okay with it? Uh, and I thought well yeah, providing I do it the the right way and and treat his memory with respect et cetera, I think it'll be okay.
2: Yes. And it
1: kind of has been. I mean, there's been changes recently. I mean Bethany's had a as you know she had a girl baby girl last year, and she doesn't really want to do. Gigs anymore, not for the foreseeable future. Um, but I and that's that's perfectly, you know, I, I, I totally uh, understand. I mean, especially as like I was saying, I, I quit the band for a while for family reasons. I totally get that, you know. Um, but on the other hand, I still quite like going out and playing. So we've sort of gone into a a, a new reincarnation of just it's just two. Me and Steve, the guitarist, going out doing like an industrial music thing um, just to do some gigs because, you know, quite fancy the idea of doing it, Dave. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And do you find that um, because you have quite a big following, don't you? I noticed, you know, whenever you put stuff up and on Spotify as well, you get a lot of monthly listeners as well. Unfortunately, it doesn't probably Equ- uh, equate to financial <laughs> stuff does it <laughs> but Sorry, it, 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 the, the,
1: yeah it, it fills the coffers in the ego but it doesn't up <laughs> up in but yeah yes yeah. but are you are yeah, you sort I mean,
0: of chuffed it, 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 that, it, it, that the band have such a sort of kind of dedicated following and i guess you must be picking up new you know uh, new listeners all the time because obviously people like me who get old and a bit like oh I don't know if I want to go to a gig, you know, who's uh, probably a bit of a pain in the bum for people like you. You know, think come on, come and see us live. You know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean we do get a bit of a mix at gigs. Um, we do not so many these days of of the guys you know guys that used to come to the to the old factory gigs because you you know people don't don't want to go out as much. But we do we got sort of quite a Quite a strong younger audience that have come along in the last few years, so you know we do get quite quite a mix, really. But um, yeah, it's you know it's all it's all online, isn't it? Really,
0: it is all online, which I suppose you know it's just one of those changes in the music industry. And I suppose people, it keeps you know it's a bit like archiving a band, isn't it? And I suppose if people are really keen, they might go and then buy some product to go with it but it is a bit unfortunate that sometimes it doesn't equate to that much financial um i don't know reward or some sort of return for all that kind of work but at the same time i I also think it's great that stuff is kind of being archived in some way even though it might all just potentially go i suppose by a push of a button you know yeah
1: you know yeah I'm a bit old school. I prefer vinyl.
0: Yes. Well, this is true, actually. <laughs> and it's, it's hard to get away from that, actually. And, you know, I mean, with the amount of experience and, and the sort of ups and downs, I mean, what, what would you say to your kind of 18-year-old self starting out in music? Because obviously you must have kind of thought, God, I wish I'd known that or I wish I'd sort of, someone had just whispered that in my ear when I was starting out on this interesting journey.
1: Would I have whispered to my eighteen year old self? God that is a difficult question. Um, I dunno. I don't know. Yeah, I I honestly don't know. I, I don't I don't think I would I don't I don't think I would have done an awful lot different really. Um maybe um perhaps a wider distance between myself and class a drugs <laughs> a, bit, a, bit, a bit of good advice but i probably wouldn't have taken it anyway
0: yes this is true. This is i mean a lot of people often say oh, i just wish i had enjoyed myself more i was all a bit sort of serious and a bit uptight and they thought, wow that's the 80s for you we were angsty people it was an- yeah
1: yeah i mean i didn't really when i was experiencing when i was doing it i didn't really feel like i was experiencing the 80s you know it was just how it was wasn't it you know and uh, i mean you see stuff on they do these crappy programs um like reliving the eighties and you think i don't what i don't it wasn't anything like that i don't know what it was like but it certainly wasn't like that you know
0: too true nostalgia it's a tricky subject but anyway that is the third part of my interview with vin cassidy from the band i think we'll just play a bit more music and then we'll have the last part but anyway this is another track taken from their early work this is beneath the blade That is section 25 and the track titled Beneath the Blade. This is David Eastall, the C86 show. And as I said um, earlier, I will repeat myself all the shows have been archived. You can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, and Mixcloud. And also, if you want to contact me, you can via Facebook or Twitter just go to at C86 show. Obviously, keep it positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. This is going to be the last part of my interview with Vin, when I was talking about those years when he decided to take time out of the band and what that experience was like. And this was his answer. I Vin, take it away. I was
1: focused on, on uh, becoming um, a family man and trying to earn a living, which was um, pretty difficult at the time. Um, and Matt um, went on to till about the early 2000s, really. Um, just, I mean, the ironic thing was that, that that was the period that I developed a massive drug problem and had to go into rehabs, ironically, not during the band years, although that was a sort of fertile apprenticeship, really. <laughs> 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 To do the way around.
0: Yes, because I thought, oh well, you must have just said actually I must get off this, this kind of rock and roll lifestyle because I'm, t- I'm taking too many drugs but instead it, it was some yes
1: it was, I got into the drugs when I, when I got a regular job, yeah <laughs> I should have stayed in the band
0: <laughs> Yes, rock and roll can save your life. Oh well, yeah. then that, that's yeah. a that's a huge surprise because obviously you can't mention Blackpool without mentioning John Rob. Was he also a member of your any kind of social scene during that time?
1: Um, yeah, I suppose there was the sort of uh, the um, the sort of bands, and and he did we we, we sort of uh, did a he had his little fanzine and we did a few interviews with him and stuff like that. Uh, Still stay stay in touch with John, of course, you know.
0: Yes. Um,
1: But, yeah, yeah, I mean, I know, you know, the membranes are the membranes, weren't they? Um, I think it's a bit of a different beast now, but, um, you know, as as John is as well. But um, I think the Blackpool scene was quite a, a close... A nucleus of people but seemed more fertile and more creative than than things are now yes i think blackpool music scene is probably pretty much like a lot of places where it, it just seems to be people pretending to be someone else you know covers and tributes and um, i find it a bit depressing really
2: you know
0: it is a bit strange because is it what's quite interesting Ish, as um, Cherry Red Records have been putting out these kind of compilations and they did one on Liverpool, which was a. I thought, God, I'll get this wrong. There was a Manchester and a Liverpool one. I think the Manchester one had seven CDs box set and the Liverpool one had five CDs box set of that kind of post-punk and indie period. And I just thought, my god that is so much music you know and and a lot of the bands i can remember quite a few not at all and a lot of songs i'd been desperate to track down and they'd managed to sort of find the flexi so it was a very creative time you know and i'm you know it's interesting 30 years seems to be a period of time that passes that people start to look back and think actually that was you know we can look at that now with a bit of objectivity and think Yes, that was quite interesting because there was a couple of, uh, last year there was two books that came out on the fanzine world. And um, yes, you know, just looking, you know, and again, it was 30 years. It was as if that period of time has to pass before someone has a kind of a look at, that past with a different look and a different attitude and and suddenly say actually we can say this has been fantastic you know rather than just it's kind of indie pop you know it's suddenly like no this was really worth remembering so all those kind of compilations and collections i guess will help keep that scene slightly going for the next for the young young folk who might be interested and curious
1: well i mean uh um Sort of listen to some of the stuff. some of the things that that, that Martin produced I, I'm quite um the, the kind of the, the, the they've stood the test of time in a way I suppose which is that that's a nice feeling, you know. So quite often things can sound so of a time, can't they, you know. And um, he 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 had a nice, he had a good a good touch where, you know, quite often the it does sound kind of timeless really um so you know that that's that's pleasing
2: well it
0: was interesting cuz Trevor Horn that Trevor Horn sound of the 80s which i grew to um hate quite quickly i think Trevor Horn's been going back and reproducing some of his kind of work and yeah. and i think it sounds even worse now actually
2: from something yeah, that someone I said imagine, you <laughs> know i mean
1: it was pretty much sort of at the time so totally overproduced wasn't it um and um god knows what it what you'd do to it now you know if it's even worse you know <laughs> <laughs>
0: but it, but then it was interesting because david bowie though he had passed away i think he'd made you know sort of had, had let this happen through his his estate was that they'd reproduced those 80s albums and taken out that production and that to run you know the electronic yeah. drum sound and giving it a much more organic quality, and actually some of those albums, which were pretty awful, sound quite reasonable now. So it's much quite, more
2: listenable.
0: Yes. So was yeah. were your memories of sort of working with Martin quite? You know, can you remember much of that kind of process?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I've got pretty, pretty clear memories of it. I mean, um, at firstly, I mean, I think Martin does get. Um, he can't speak for himself, obviously, but of quite a few um musicians that have worked with him have said that it wasn't a pleasant experience being produced by him. Um, but that wasn't the case for us. I mean, we at the time, um, we we knew when we were going down, like, to do the first album with him that we, we were going to be produced and there was a producer gonna produce us. So you kind of um, you get out of the driving seat, don't you, and just let them do the production, which is which is what the idea was. And and I think some of the people that are, can be, speak negatively about their experience with Martin in the studio are, are people that they don't want to get out of the driving seat. You know, they, if you're gonna if, if you're gonna let him do it, you've got to let him do it. So um, and he, he was he was he was okay with us, you know. Um, I Meaning. I heard stories about him, you know, sort of basically, once the band had done the, the, the recorded the the tracks, that he basically wanted to sort of fuck them off so he could just go. But he, he was pretty friendly with us. But it was, you know, we knew that he, he was going to make the executive decisions about stuff. Yes. And said that, he still did discuss stuff with us. And um, on the first album, we did a bit of a jam with him on one of the tracks and he, he was playing keyboards and stuff and, and you know so he got he got quite involved in, uh on that level you know
2: yeah.
1: we weren't in any way precious about the material like some people can be you know um so we were happy for him to to do whatever you know he deemed fit really you know and as I say, I'm glad we did because listen back to some of the stuff now I think, yeah, that, you know, it stands the test of time. It's, you know, it's got a, it's got something about it,
0: an aura, you know. Well, your '80s output was quite phenomenal. I mean, to do four albums in one decade is um, yeah, it yeah. it was kind of like full on. It was like almost like the Smiths kind of output during that, during their five years. They did just put put out the material, and um, then exploded.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess
0: it does happen, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. That I guy. mean the the first album was um you know, it was quite scary because we went off you know, what was it? Um you know, my brother said playing a, a cheap guitar in an expensive studio, <laughs> you know, sort of it was Pink Floyd's studio. It was like um it was just an amazingly sort of large plush really expensive studio and so you know it was oh, bloody glad Martin was there really because he you know a bit of moral support um and and quite a good guide really
0: yes well i could imagine because oh. at the time pink floyd well they probably still are but i can remember that period in the 80s where they'd become so big and they'd become sort of like um yes it must have been kind of you, you could have easily felt small, small walking into such an environment.
1: He, yeah, I mean, I didn't remember this, but Paul, I was talking to him the other week, and he said that he can remember... He had, like, a games room there with the... Do you remember a, Space Invaders? Yes. Uh, that was, like, the big thing, and he was playing Space Invaders, and he remember looking over his shoulder, and, and David Gilmore is it? The, was yeah. waiting to have a go. <laughs> so. I mean, yeah, but when we'd done that album uh, in that huge plush studio and then the second album was kind of more, it was like a a DIY thing with the 16-track studio in in our rehearsal room, you know, completely different approach. But um, the thing with that was we were able to experiment more and, Spend a bit more time, whereas it was it wasn't quite like that. At Britannia, it was quite you know you sort of the clock's ticking. You got to go and do your track, you know, do a couple of takes, move on to the next one. Whereas when we did the second album, it was much more relaxed, and we were able to experiment more. Yeah, but it's self self produced, you know, obviously.
0: And what was it like? Because a couple of years ago, you, you know, you had a, your track, the track hit, got sampled into it by Carney West. That's oh, right. Yeah. And did that um, was that. Did you? How did you sort of respond to that?
1: Well, how are you supposed to? Do that? I mean, it's 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 kind of surreal, isn't it? Really. Um, that approached his management company. Had approached the people, the guy that does our um, publishing. And he, he, you know, he rang me up and and, and, and told me, and I, I couldn't really. It's difficult to take this to to register it really, but they said they, they want to sample the track. So, I mean, in my, sort of the way I thought about that was sampling, you know, like sampling a a snare sound or a guitar or, you know, a a, a snippet of of sound. But what they actually, what they sent a, um, like a a rough mix of the work, which we had to approve or disapprove, we could, you know, whether we were going to agree to it or not. And what they'd actually sampled was the last sort of, one minute or so of the song, the whole bloody thing, you know, with um, not just a part of it, but the whole thing. So I was I was even more surprised then. Um,
0: and but, was it? I mean, because it because it's kind of boggling because you think, how did he find out, or how did they find out?
1: Well, we never found out. Had find out. we? Could, I mean, there were there were, there are theories. Okay, but but that. That sort. I mean, one theory is that uh, Peter Savile, who did the artwork for that original album, had something to do. Did some work for his production company, I think, a year before or something. So the theory is that he may have. There may be some link there. And then um, one of the producers of the track. Um, my nephew got in touch with him on Instagram, funnily enough, and he said that Kanye came into the studio with a copy of the album under his arm and said, "I want to use this track." So, you know,
0: <laughs> that must just be the strangest experience ever. You must have think, you know, you must yeah, have, I, do, you I, must I mean, have, I, you must have had problems sleeping that night, just thinking, how, why.
1: Did he... Yeah, no. I, I Like, who's is, is somebody having a, a joke at our expense, or? Um, and I mean, I, obviously, I, you know, you've, I've heard of Kanye West. Of course, I have. But I, I couldn't say I was really familiar with his work. You know, it's not really on my radar, as it were. So, um, when I heard the track, um, I thought, well, yeah, okay, let's let's do it. <laughs> and um I mean, I didn't particularly like what he'd done with it um I think that they manipulated the, the the original track in such a way that it kind of been speeded up they changed they changed the tone of it or something, maybe not the tempo, and my brother sounded kind of like a bit like a chipmunk <laughs> um, which I don't think he would have appreciated.
2: No. Well
1: he would have appreciated the money that his kids got from from it. So it wouldn't you know, we we went with it. Um and then on the last album that we did that came out um last July, one of the tracks, we did a cover of FML, the track that Kanye did with our stuff on. But we did it um because our I did it because what wanted set the record straight, because I didn't really... I wasn't that keen on what they'd done, if you know what I mean. It's yeah. not something that we would ever normally do, a cover. Um, but we thought, you know, it seemed it seemed a good way of sort of second setting the record straight. As yes, well.
0: completing the circle.
1: <laughs> yeah, weird, it, isn't it? It
0: must be... But those moments must almost make it you know almost but it it must be quite nice when you think oh that was that was eight you know that was like I don't know I have to count on my fingers but 81 yeah that was a long time ago and you you know this kind of guy who lives in a quite a surreal world and seems on a different planet thinking how does he know this even exists
1: We wrote it after, it it was literally done, we were were sort of writing the track and working on it, and it was the same month that John Lennon was shot, that's why we called it Hit.
0: Oh, God, it all makes sense now, doesn't
1: it? Well, if it does I explain it to me, I don't. I don't know whether that. I don't think that has any relevance to. I don't. I don't know why. Why uh, the guy? Why it was picked? I'm not. I mean, then you hear other stories, other theories that that he had. He'd have um, like teams of people scanning the internet for suitable songs to sample and stuff. You know. And, I mean, if you look at his writing credits on a lot of stuff that he does. There's endless lists of different people and things and tracks that are sampled and stuff.
0: And that's going to be the last part of my interview with Vin Cassidy from Section 25. A huge thank you for giving me the time for that. We've taken months to uh, eventually get a date together, but we did it and uh, much appreciated. And that, dear listener, is the end of the show. Thank you ever so much for listening. This has been David Esau, the C86 show And guess what? I'm going to leave you with another track by the band. This is titled Inspiration.